If you've been to school in Australia, your sex ed might have looked something like this. I went to school in Wagga Wagga. In Camden, in southwest Sydney. In the Northern Beaches, and I went to McKellar All Girls High School. I went to school in Western Sydney. My sex education in formal schooling was shit. Our school received the talk in year nine. Year seven. Probably in year seven or year eight. Condom on the cucumber. We did all that. I was disgusted by it. I was like, please get this away from me. Most of the people in the class had never seen a condom, but um, <laughs> someone already knew how to use it. I just looked at this cucumber and I was like, why the fuck is it that size? It was never clarified that you caught an STI off someone if they had one. It was like, sex is for marriage and that's the end of that story. Pretty much non-existent. Inconsistent. There was a lot of not taking it seriously. It's very difficult to have a healthy relationship with sex when your school doesn't even really know gay people exist. It was just never spoken about. That would be the, oh yeah, we had to talk about the gays today. Okay, everyone, gay people exist, don't get HIV, bye. So I had to kind of like go out on my own and discover things. I wish it had covered why we have sex. Great, we know how to put a condom on. What about sex? What about lubrication? I wish I learned that it was okay to touch my body like that. I wish I had learned consent does not happen by coercion. You need boundaries and you need to care for one another. I think that's something I wish I learned. I'd give it a six. A one out of ten. I'm going to go back on that. I'm going to give it a five. Australia has a national sex ed curriculum, but it's down to the state to interpret what should go into the classroom, throw gender, sexuality, school location and cultural linguistic diversity into the pot, and you have a mixed bag of experiences. So what does good sex ed look like? And what does one researcher say is getting in the way? You're listening to Not at the Dinner Table. So my name's Cecilia Roth. I'm uh, the Senior Education Officer here at Family Planning New South Wales. Family Planning is a non-profit that teaches the teachers how to give sex ed. Basically any professionals who are not uh, clinicians. I hear the word holistic sex education, but I'm wondering if you can tell me what that looks like. Yeah, so you might see um, the phrase comprehensive sexuality education or holistic approach. What that means is it's looking at not just looking at sexuality around, um, you know, sometimes people think that's just we just talk about intercourse and that's about it. It's actually taking a, a holistic approach, which means looking at all the different ways that sexuality can affect people. And when I say sexuality, I'm also talking about that in a broad term. So things like uh, the emotional impact, how it impacts on your identity, how it impacts on the way that people negotiate relationships and think about relationships. And then obviously you've got things like the whole biology of it, how your body works, you know, infections, diseases, conception, all of that stuff. And then you've also got some of those negative aspects of sexuality where you You've got people exploiting power, safety and misuse of power. All of those sorts of things are also part of sexuality. So it's really just making sure that we're not only focusing on the negatives, we're not only focusing on the biology, we're actually looking at the holistic view of a person and the way that relationships, sexuality, sexual health, the way that affects people in a broader way. Roth says there's a want across school systems for comprehensive sex education. But sometimes, according to one researcher, social unease about under-18s and sex mixed with a pinch of politics can get in the way. 
We have found in our research that sex education is one of the most politicised topics in Australia and indeed in Western countries today. That's Professor Alan McKee. He's an Associate Dean Researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney, who's published widely on sexual health and development. We know and we have known for three decades what sex education should be. It should be comprehensive, it should be age-appropriate and it should be unafraid. We also know that what's called abstinence-only sex education, which basically says to young people, you should not be having sex until you're in a stable, long-term, committed, ideally married relationship, does not work. In fact, it leads to more unplanned pregnancies and more STIs because young people then end up not planning and preparing for the sex that they are having. We know all this, and it is uncontroversial within the researcher community. However, It is very difficult for schools to deliver the sex education that young people need and want because there is a very small but very vocal minority of parents and politicians who strongly object to young people finding out about sex. You can see it from the Safe Schools debacle that happened a few years ago in Australia. The Safe Schools program was created to help schools become LGBT plus inclusive. It began in 2010 in Victoria, then went national three years later, providing information and lesson resources to teachers. But in early 2016, the voluntary program came under fire in the national parliament. If someone proposed exposing a child to this material, the parents would probably call the police because it would sound a lot like grooming work that a sexual predator might undertake. Conservative government backbenchers like George Christensen led a push against the program. Uh, I commend the government on undertaking a review of this program. I call on schools using the program to immediately suspend it, pending the outcome of that review. That independent review Christensen mentioned is the Lowerden Review. It found official program resources were age-appropriate and in line with the Australian curriculum. It also found activities in some lessons may not have been suitable in all contexts, but that can fall to the teacher to decide. But by the end of the year, the federal government stopped funding. The next year over, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, the ACT and Tasmania pulled out of the program. The Safe Schools program was a completely it would seem to any researcher, uncontroversial program that focused on diverse gender and sexual identities and simply being tolerant of those, and yet it was turned into a political football. Now, this might come as a surprise. It turns out most teenagers don't get their advice from school. I think I learned more from the sealed section of those girlfriend magazines. Dolly Doctor, like, you know, like from that magazine that was a big thing growing up. Growing up with technology, I felt very well informed. I also would research things on online. I'd go to like articles written by women. Honestly, I learned about sex through porn. I did not get my information from anywhere. That's the thing is being a gay person. There's a lot of things that you go into blindly and you just kind of learn and manoeuvre as you get older. You would, like, hear things from, like, if you had, like, friends who were, like, you know, a few years older than you who were starting to be sexually active, so it wasn't really quality advice. I was on Tumblr, and my mum is a super open person, but she also said, if you have sex with a boy in high school, he will break up with you and you'll be left feeling empty and helpless because that's what happened to her with her first boyfriend. Note that from the people I spoke to, almost no one said they went to their parents. For information outside of pure biology, young people are not usually getting it from their parents. 
because there is an urban myth, a very strong urban myth, again promoted by the reactionary conservative activists, that if you talk to young people about sex, then you will encourage them to have sex. Or even the, the most absurd version of this lie is the Andrew Bolt version, which is that talking to young people about sex is a form of child sexual abuse. Unfortunately, most of the parents nowadays didn't get sex education from their parents or their schooling when they were growing up. So they're making it up as they go along. And as I say, they're making it up as they go along in a context of the kind of hysteria driven by the Andrew Bolts of this world, which is telling them that if they actually do the right thing, that's somehow going to damage their kids. When we did our research, uh, talking to 14 to 16-year-olds about where they found out about sex, the only ones whose parents were comfortable talking to them about sex were the ones who were lucky enough to have nurses as parents. Ultimately, my own feeling is that the base has to be from the parent because you're there, you're there from word go. <laughs> Maggie Lennon wasn't a nurse, but she and her adult daughter Eliza have always been comfortable talking about sex. See, we had a very particular experience. The school got a lady to come in and she had a PowerPoint presentation. They were like stick figures and stuff. What I think was meant to happen was that they were meant to be like different sessions for the different age groups. But the lady that presented it melded the two together. There was a miscommunication apparently. So before I knew it, my little year three girl was hearing the stuff that the year fives and six were hearing. They had like the stick figures in bed and I think they were probably a bit more fleshed out than just stick figures. Unfortunately, suddenly she was getting more information than she needed. And then it was like... <laughs> Let's take off the sheet and let's see what's underneath and what they're doing. Would have been an interesting conversation going home in the car. My mum and I got home and we were standing in the garage after we got out of the car. And my mum said something and I was like, look, it's nothing I didn't see in The Sims. Maggie and Eliza are in the minority. The 2018 National Survey of Secondary Students and Sexual Health found under 20% of 14 to 18-year-olds were confident talking about sex with parents, guardians or step-parents. And what that means is that a lot of young people are relying on entertainment. Dr. Google and what they see on television and YouTube. And sometimes that can be great. There is some wonderful stuff out there. Unfortunately, a lot of what's out there is shit. And there's no quality control and there's nothing to guarantee that young people get the information that they need. And so unfortunately, with schools and parents not taking up their responsibilities for a lot of this, young people are left to their own devices and off they go scavenging. Now, sometimes it works out fine. And thank God, young people are in in large part very competent and confident and intelligent. But they're not getting the support they deserve and that they need in order to make sure they grow up into happy, healthy sexual adults who have good sex lives, however they define that, which make their lives better. Roth agrees the politics can be a challenge, but says sex educators just have to stick to their guns. Look, we've got to work with what we've got, and we know that there are elements of the community that are conservative, but I have had many conversations with people working in religious schools who are doing a fantastic job and absolutely um, delivering with a holistic approach, and they're doing that within the framework of their faith, um, but still being able to provide great information and great education to young people. I think we really need to still try and get the message out there regardless of what's going on politically. How do you reach parents who are perhaps don't know how or are simply unwilling to have that conversation with their kids or have their kids in a room learning about sex? 
Yeah, look, there's a lot of reasons why parents might feel uncomfortable about um, their children learning about sexuality. Obviously, there are things within their own background, maybe their family, maybe a cultural or for religious reasons. It wasn't something that people talked about. Or it might be just that there are more specific rules about when it's okay to talk about particular things with particular people. So, for example, in some cultures, you would only talk about women's health stuff with other women and men's health stuff with other men. So if you've got a woman providing this information to young men, they might think that's not quite appropriate. You might find that there are certain things that they think are only appropriate to talk about at a particular age or if a person's getting married. So, you know... We can understand why some of those things happen. There might be fears and concerns about if my young person knows about this thing that might affect their reputation or my reputation. I have had teachers say to me that when they do have parents who don't want particular topics for their children to participate in, following that up with a call to just reassure them around what content is actually going to be included often will be enough for a parent to say, oh, well, that's okay, I'm all right with that. And they often are even relieved that teachers are going to cover that at school because maybe they were feeling a little bit awkward about how they were going to cover that with their children. So look, communication is really the key. And I think if there are particular things that are off limits to at least try and provide information around that so that young people maybe will know where to go to get that information if that's a possibility. And for parents unsure how to talk about sexuality with their kids, McKee offers this. From the point that your kids start asking questions about sex, you answer them. And you answer those questions honestly, using age-appropriate language. You do not volunteer any more information. And most importantly, you don't look embarrassed while you're doing it. And that will start happening from very young. A couple of years old, kids will start asking you, where do babies come from? And the answer to that is not the stork brings them. The answer to that is not, I'll tell you when you're older. The answer to that is two people have sex, there is a sperm and an egg. The sperm fertilizes the egg, which grows into a baby. There you go. Very simple. On you go. And if you give an answer like that in a non-embarrassed, straightforward way, the kid will not be embarrassed and they will move on to their next question. What that does is that sets up a very clear relationship between you and the kid that when something bothers them or they want to know something, they can come straight to you and talk about it. That's where we'll leave this episode. If you like what you're hearing, follow for more on SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Not at the Dinner Table is produced and hosted by me, River McCrossan, and published at the Togengala Student Magazine. Supervising editor is Eliza Lorenko, the same one you heard earlier. Music from Blue Dot Sessions linked on the website, where you can also find transcripts for every episode. Captioned episodes available on YouTube.